Good evening, dear listeners. Yours cruelly here to give you another... <laughs> Sorry. Yours cruelly here to give you this, your weekly dread on Dread Time Stories. I think we can get rid of the music. I'm trying a new way of running the... the I'm trying a new some new software to um, run the board, as it were. Well, that is the board. Um... So we'll see what happens. So anyway, uh, this is Dread Time Stories. Uh, I am your host, yours cruelly, and uh, tonight we got a we got a fun show. Uh, we have our story tonight is a story by American author F. Marion uh, Crawford. Um, he's known for frequently using Italy as a setting in his. Um, stories, um, but he also wrote some weird fiction, and and I just want to stress that um, for the purposes of this program, I use weird fiction in the way Lovecraft and others of his time use weird fiction. It's kind of a catch-all: supernatural, ghost stories, monster stories, stuff like that. Um, so uh, yeah, F. Marion Crawford did do quite a few weird stories, weird, a, lot, a lot of weird fiction, and he was generally considered, uh, Lovecraft considered him one of his influences. Um, so we do, definitely would not have a um, Cthulhu mythos, arguably, without um, Mr. Crawford. And I'm going to increase my, my microphone a bit, because it should not be... Uh, in the negatives, but there we go. Uh, so anyway, we don't have a tale from the table this week. Oh no, 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 no! That that's hot. Let's try that. Uh, we don't have tales from the table this week because I did not have a D and D session. Um, Zin, who plays Lelk, our Goblin Ranger, uh, was out of town with his husband. Uh, Reverb at his sister's wedding uh, to, to the lovely bride and her groom. May I just say Mazel Tov. Uh, congratulations. Ketkon uh, Omedetto. Or is it, would it be Ketkon Chita Omedetto? Congratulations on getting married. Uh, 
uh, I'd have to look. My, my, if my Japanese teachers were listening, like, oh, he was a terrible student. It's been 10 years. It's been almost 10 years, guys. Cut me some fucking slack. Uh, but anyway, uh, so instead we hung out with my friend Chrono playing World of Warcraft. And I, I will admit I'm not a big MMO person. I just... I'm a solo gamer, first of all, and MMOs take commit a level of commitment that I just can't have between work and my ADHD. They just can't hold my attention for long. Uh, you know, it's not it's not that uh, I can certainly see the the draw and allure of these sorts of games, but they're just not for me. Uh, I enjoyed hanging out with Chrono and my friends. It was a lot of fun, but. Um, I don't intend to dive into World of Warcraft. I just, no, it's not. I told him, I said, if you guys want to hang out, uh, you know, play, uh, you know, Diablo 2 Resurrected with me, I'm cool with that. Uh, that's a game I can kind of sink my teeth into because it has a well-defined plot. Um, and that's the other thing that drives me nuts about um, a lot of MMOs is they don't have a lot of plot. I, I like plot in my games. Uh, and I'm not, like, saying that to be mean. No, it's just, again, that's my personal opinion. Okay? I love Final Fantasy, but I can never get into Final Fantasy eleven, and, and I don't think I can get into Final Fantasy fourteen. Not because they're bad games, but because MMOs are just not Adam's thing. So. However, we do have a session next week, or, well, this coming Sunday, um, and... Uh, we'll be dealing with the aftermath to their confrontation with, uh, and I let it slip what I was basing. Well, see, I let slip that it was an Oni. I didn't let slip it's a homebrew Oni. Um, and I'm not going to give details, but it's homebrew. So even if they look in the monster manual, which if you're my players and listening, do not look in the fucking monster manual Um, even if they did do that, which they shouldn't, um, it, it really wouldn't help them because this, this, this homebrew monster, um, has different stats, different HP, different abilities, different spells. Well, you know, the whole schmiel. I mean, the Oni, I, you know, I use the Oni as a template and it is called the Oni Demon, but... There are some twists to this to this demon um, that I just can't wait to get to sharing. Uh, but uh, I will say that um, they'll probably be leveling up sometime in the near future. And uh, I've been reading a lot about how to better to be a better DM because that's not, you know I love to tell stories. I love to talk and share stories and. You know, voice act. I, I, you know, people. All my old friends, all my rowdy, rowdy friends, will tell you, um, I, I am influenced by what I hear, by what I, you know, and um, I, I wish I had the chops to be a professional voice actor. I just don't. Um, between um, the fact that I, I have not had any sort of acting classes. Acting classes were not on my radar in college or in high school. Um, I never really had, you know, I, I have trouble memorizing lines. Um, the one class I did, I took where I had to do something that, I couldn't memorize my lines. No matter how much I read the script, I couldn't memorize my lines. 
and it's because of my ADHD. I have I have some memory issues due to my ADHD. Um, so the other issue is that if you want to go anywhere in voice acting and you know actually make it your career, you have to move to LA. Um, and I'm sure some people are going to say, but Adam, what about Funimation? Well, uh, first of all, you cannot work for Funimation and work for any union job. So if you work for Funimation, remember Funimation is headquartered in a right-to-work state. They're headquartered in Texas. And don't get me wrong, uh, Funimation tends to be a bit more liberal, but if they really were as liberal as their politics indicate, they would move shop to uh, L.A., but then that means having to play the game with the union, and they don't want that. They want to make anime cheap. Um, I'm kind of hoping this deal with Crunchyroll and Sony and whatever um, changes that, but the fact of the matter is that, fun, you know, don't get me wrong, Funimation puts out a quality product, but they do it by cutting costs. And one of those cost-cutting cost measures is they work in a right-to-work state where they where they don't have to worry about SAG-AFTRA. Um, but that's why you have a lot... What you know? What happens is um, Funimation will build a stable of actors that they keep around for four or five years. And then the stable of actors decides there's better things for them on the horizon. I'm moving to L.A. And the problem is, like I said, once you are in SAG-AFTRA, you cannot take non-union work. You, you, if you do, it will damage your career. You will look like a scab. You are expected, part of, part of being in the union is you do only union work. Um, so again, that's a huge, and I've talked to people, um, who are like, well, you know, you just don't want it enough. No, I want more than anything in the world. I think I've got a, a fair degree of talent and, um, you know, I can be funny. I've done movie riffing, which is basically improv comedy. Um, but if I wanted to be serious about this as a career, I would have to move to L.A., where the cost of living is astronomical. I may, I'm making almost $20 an hour now because I work for the government. And even that wouldn't be enough to live off of in L.A. Um and there are just people out there who don't accept that as a barrier to success. It's like, there, there are, yeah, that's a barrier. Or when you have someone who just says, just take classes, you'll be fine. Well, what if I don't have the money to take those classes? My dream doesn't count. Uh, you know, so like I said, uh, I guess I do kind of have a little rant for today. Um, but that's, that's kind of my opinion on, um, the voice acting industry. I, I really hope Funimation decides to start going union um, because I can tell you this, I think if Funimation announced that they, you know, either, um, you know, they were going to go union, um, I, I think that they could use that as a leverage. They are a huge employer in the um, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Or I think they're in Austin. I don't remember which. I'd have to look. I think it's Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, they are they're a decent employer in that area, and so the loss would be a blow to the local economy. Um, so that, you know, they could leverage that, but they got to be willing to say, you know what, there's a time when, you know, these are our voice actors, you know, like a lot of the voice actors are overwhelmingly liberal. 
Um, remember the the Kick Vic movement that saw the fall of Vic Mignogna, who I always knew was a tremendous ass. Don't get me wrong. Um, before it came out that he was a total sleazeball, I knew he was an asshole. Um, because he would basically hijack convention panels and basically turn them into sermons. Like, look, dude, if I wanted to be in a fucking sermon, I'd be in church on Sunday, not an anime convention. Um, he just, he can't, he can't keep his Christian dick in his pants. Um, he's also destroyed fan art that he was asked to sign, um, that depicted people in gay relationships because my religion says that's wrong. That doesn't mean you destroy someone else's hard work. You, you politely hand it back to them and you decline to sign like an adult. Nope. He has destroyed people's fan art for portraying things he doesn't like. Um, so I always knew he was an ass. I wasn't surprised, you know, um, I, I'll admit I was, I mean, I knew he was an ass, but I didn't expect him to be a sexual predator. Um, and he was one of Funimation's stable people, you know, like he worked for Funimation for, you know, years. Same thing with, you know, Todd Habercorn, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing. Very nice guy. Huge Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, folks. Um, but, um, they both worked for Funimation for a few years, probably six, seven years, and then they, they moved on. They moved to LA and they went, you know, joined SAG-AFTRA. But the thing is, is that you cannot join SAG-AFTRA based on your work in non-union stuff. So you basically, you, you, you're basically eligible to join SAG-AFTRA when you have a union job. Um, I've got a friend who got a single line in a move in a movie and that's how he got el- that's how he was eligible for a sag after tra- card and he got it so anyway so we're going to get to our story tonight and again I want to stress that I am trying a new um way of um a new way of um, doing this um, running the board on the show um, so if there's anything wrong please do not hesitate to tell me um, if you you know if you so um, with that said we're gonna get to our story which is The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford. Hope everyone enjoys. It's a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter One. Somebody asked for the cigars. Truth. We had talked long, and the conversation was beginning to languish. The tobacco smoke had got into the heavy curtains. The wine had got into those brains which were liable to become heavy, and it was already perfectly evident that unless somebody did something to rouse our oppressed spirits, the meeting would soon come to its natural conclusion, and we, the guests, would speedily go home to bed, and most certainly to sleep. No one had said anything very remarkable. It may be that no one had anything very remarkable to say. Jones had given us every particular of his last hunting adventure in Yorkshire. Mr. Tompkins, of Boston, had explained at elaborate length those working principles by the due and careful maintenance of which the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad not only extended its territory, increased its departmental influence, and transported livestock without starving them to death before the day of actual delivery, but also had for years succeeded in deceiving those passengers who bought its tickets into the fallacious belief that the corporation aforesaid was really able to transport human life without destroying it. Signor Tombola had endeavored to persuade us by arguments, which we took no trouble to oppose, that the unity of his country in no way resembled the average modern torpedo carefully planned, constructed with all the skill of the greatest European arsenals, but when constructed, destined to be directed by feeble hands into a region where it would undoubtedly explode, unseen, unfeared, and unheard, into the illimitable wastes of political chaos. It is unnecessary to go into further details. The conversation had assumed proportions which would have bored Prometheus on his rock, which would have driven Tantalus to distraction, and which would have impelled Ixion to seek relaxation in the simple but instructive dialogues of Herr Ollendorf, rather than submit to the greater evil of listening to our talk. We had set a table for hours, we were bored, we were tired, and nobody showed signs of moving. Somebody called for cigars. We all instinctively looked towards the speaker. Brisbane was a man of five and thirty years of age, and remarkable for those gifts which chiefly attract the attention of men. He was a strong man. The external proportions of his figure presented nothing extraordinary to the common eye, though his size was about the average. He was a little over six feet in height and moderately broad in the shoulder, and he did not appear to be stout, but on the other hand, he was certainly not thin. His small head was supported by a strong and sinewy neck. His broad muscular hands appeared to possess a peculiar skill in breaking walnuts without the assistance of the ordinary cracker, and seeing him in profile, one could not help remarking the extraordinary breadth of his sleeves and the unusual thickness of his chest. He was one of those men who are commonly spoken of among men as deceptive, that is to say, that though he looked exceedingly strong, he was in reality very much stronger than he looked. Of his features, I need say little. His head is small, his hair is thin, his eyes are blue, his nose is large, he has a small mustache and a square jaw. Everybody knows Brisbane, and when he asked for a cigar, everybody looked at him. It is a very singular thing, said Brisbane. Everybody stopped talking. Brisbane's voice was not loud but possessed a peculiar quality of penetrating general conversation, and cutting it like a knife. Everybody listened. Brisbane, perceiving that he had attracted their general attention, 
lit his cigar with great equanimity. "'It is very singular,' he continued, "'that thing about ghosts. "'People are always asking whether anybody has seen a ghost. "'I have. "'Bosh! What, you?' "'You don't mean to say, Brisbane. "'Well, for a man of his intelligence.' A chorus of exclamations greeted Brisbane's remarkable statement. Everybody called for cigars, and Stubbs, the butler, suddenly appeared from the depths of nowhere with a fresh bottle of dry champagne. The situation was saved. Brisbane was going to tell a story. "'I am an old sailor,' said Brisbane. "'And as I have to cross the Atlantic pretty often, I have my favorites. Most men have their favorites. I have seen a man wait in a Broadway bar for three-quarters of an hour for a particular car which he liked. I believe the barkeeper made at least one-third of his living by that man's preference. I have a habit of waiting for certain ships when I am obliged to cross that duck pond. It may be a prejudice, but I was never cheated out of a good passage but once in my life. I remember it very well. It was a warm morning in June, and the Custom House officials, who were hanging about waiting for a steamer already on her way up from the quarantine, presented a peculiarly hazy and thoughtful appearance. I had not much luggage. I never have. I mingled with a crowd of passengers, porters, and officious individuals in blue coats and brass buttons, who seemed to spring up like mushrooms from the deck of a moored steamer to obtrude their unnecessary services upon the independent passenger. I have often noticed with a certain interest the spontaneous evolution of these fellows. They are not there when you arrive. Five minutes after the pilot is called, go ahead. They, or at least their blue coats and brass buttons, have disappeared from deck and gangway as completely as though they had been consigned to that locker which traditionally unanimously ascribes to Davy Jones. But at the moment of starting, they are there, clean-shaved, blue-coated, and ravenous for fees. I hastened on board. The Kamchatka was one of my favorite ships. I say was, because she emphatically no longer is. I cannot conceive of any inducement which would entice me to make another voyage in her. Yes, I know what you are going to say. She is uncommonly clean in the run aft. She has enough bluffing off in the bows to keep her dry, and the lower berths are most of them double. But I won't cross in her again. Excuse the digression. I got on board. I hailed a steward whose red nose and redder whiskers were equally familiar to me. One hundred and five lower berths, said I, in the businesslike tone of men who think no more of crossing the Atlantic than taking a whiskey cocktail at downtown Delmonico's. The steward took my portmanteau, greatcoat, and rug. I shall never forget the expression of his face. Not that he turned pale. It is maintained by the most eminent divines that even miracles cannot change the course of nature. I have no hesitation in saying that he did not turn pale, but from his expression I judged that he was either about to shed tears, to sneeze, or to drop my portmanteau. As the latter contained two bottles of particularly fine sherry presented to me for my voyage by my old friend Sniggenson Van Pickens, I felt extremely nervous. But the steward did none of these things. "'Well, I'm damned,' said he in a low voice, and led the way. I suppose my Hermes, as he led me to the lower regions, had had a little grog. But I said nothing and followed him. 105 was on the port side, well aft. There was nothing remarkable about the stateroom. The lower berth, like most of those upon the Kamchatka, was double. There was plenty of room. There was the usual washing apparatus, calculated to convey an idea of luxury to the mind of a North American Indian. 
There were the usual inefficient racks of brown wood in which it is more easy to hang a large-sized umbrella than the common toothbrush of commerce. Upon the uninviting mattresses were carefully folded together those blankets which a great modern humorist had aptly compared to cold buckwheat cakes. The question of towels was left entirely to the imagination. The glass decanters were filled with a transparent liquid faintly tinged with brown, but from which an odor less faint, but not more pleasing, ascended to the nostrils, like a far-off seasick reminiscence of oily machinery. Sad-colored curtains half-closed the upper berth. The hazy June daylight shed a faint illumination upon the desolate little scene. Ugh, how I hate that stateroom. The steward deposited my traps and looked at me as though he wanted to get away, probably in search of more passengers and more fees. It is always a good plan to start in favor with those functionaries, and I accordingly gave him certain coins there and then. I'll try and make you comfortable all I can, he remarked, as he put the coins in his pocket. Nevertheless, there was a doubtful intonation in his voice which surprised me. Possibly his scale of fees had gone up, and he was not satisfied. But on the whole, I was inclined to think that, as he himself would have expressed it, he was the better for a glass. I was wrong, however, and did the man injustice. Chapter 2 Nothing especially worthy of mention occurred during that day. We left the pier punctually, and it was very pleasant to be fairly under way, for the weather was warm and sultry, and the motion of the steamer produced a refreshing breeze. Everybody knows what the first day at sea is like. People pace the decks and stare at each other and occasionally meet acquaintances whom they did not know to be on board. There is the usual uncertainty as to whether the food will be good, bad, or indifferent, until the first two meals have put the matter beyond a doubt. There is the usual uncertainty about the weather, until the ship is fairly off Fire Island. The tables are crowded at first and then suddenly thinned. Pale-faced people spring from their seats and precipitate themselves towards the door, and each old sailor breathes more freely as his seasick neighbor rushes from his side, leaving him plenty of elbow room and an unlimited command over the mustard. One passage across the Atlantic is very much like another, and we who cross very often do not make the voyage for the sake of novelty. Whales and icebergs are indeed always objects of interest, but after all, one whale is very much like another whale, and one rarely sees an iceberg at close quarters. To the majority of us, the most delightful moment of the day on board an ocean steamer is when we have taken our last turn on deck, have smoked our last cigar, and having succeeded in tiring ourselves, feel at liberty to turn in with a clear conscience. On that first night of the voyage I felt particularly lazy, and went to bed in 105 rather earlier than I usually do. As I turned in, I was amazed to see that I was to have a companion, and in the upper berth had been deposited a neatly folded rug with a stick and umbrella. I had hoped to be alone, and I was disappointed, but I wondered who my roommate was to be, and I determined to have a look at him. Before I had been long in bed, he entered. He was, as far as I could see, a very tall man, very thin, very pale, with sandy hair and whiskers and colorless gray eyes. He had about him, I thought, an air of rather dubious fashion, the sort of man you might see in Wall Street, without being able precisely to say what he was doing there. The sort of man who frequents the Café Anglais, who always seems to be alone and who drinks champagne. You might meet him on a race course, but he would never appear to be doing anything there either. A little overdressed, a little odd. There are three or four of his kind on every ocean steamer. I made up my mind that I did not care to make his acquaintance, 
and I went to sleep saying to myself that I would study his habits in order to avoid him. If he rose early, I would rise late. If he went to bed late, I would go to bed early. I did not care to know him. If you once know people of that kind, they are always turning up. Poor fellow. I need not have taken the trouble to come to so many decisions about him, for I never saw him again after that first night in 105. I was sleeping soundly when I was suddenly waked by a loud noise. To judge from the sound, my roommate must have sprung with a single leap from the upper berth to the floor. I heard him fumbling with the latch and bolt of the door, which opened almost immediately, and then I heard his footsteps as he ran at full speed down the passage, leaving the door open behind him. The ship was rolling a little, and I expected to hear him stumble or fall, but he ran as though he were running for his life. The door swung on its hinges with the motion of the vessel, and the sound annoyed me. I got up and shut it, and groped my way back to my berth in the darkness. I went to sleep again, but I have no idea how long I slept. When I awoke it was still quite dark, but I felt a disagreeable sensation of cold, and it seemed to me that the air was damp. You know the peculiar smell of a cabin which has been wet with seawater. I covered myself up as well as I could, and dozed off again, framing complaints to be made the next day, and selecting the most powerful epithets in the language. I could hear my roommate turn over in the upper berth. He had probably returned while I was asleep. Once I thought I heard him groan, and I argued that he was seasick. This is particularly unpleasant when one is below. Nevertheless, I dozed off and slept till early daylight. The ship was rolling heavily, much more than on the previous evening, and the gray light which came in through the porthole changed in tint with every movement, according as the angle of the vessel's side turned the glass seawards or skywards. It was very cold, unaccountably so for the month of June. I turned my head and looked at the porthole, and saw to my surprise that it was wide open and hooked back. I believe I swore audibly, then I got up and shut it. As I turned back, I glanced at the upper berth. The curtains were drawn close together. My companion had probably felt cold as well as I. It struck me that I had slept enough. The stateroom was uncomfortable, though, strange to say. I could not smell the dampness, which had annoyed me in the night. My roommate was still asleep. Excellent opportunity for avoiding him, so I dressed at once and went on deck. The day was warm and cloudy, with an oily smell on the water. It was seven o'clock as I came out, much later than I had imagined. I came across the doctor who was taking his first sniff of the morning air. He was a young man from the west of Ireland, a tremendous fellow with black hair and blue eyes, already inclined to be stout. He had a happy-go-lucky, healthy look about him, which was rather attractive. Fine morning, I remarked, by way of introduction. Well, said he, eyeing me with an air of ready interest, it's a fine morning and it's not a fine morning. I don't think it's much of a morning. Well, no, it is not so very fine, said I. It's just what I call fugly weather, replied the doctor. It was very cold last night, I thought, I remarked. However, when I looked about, I found that the porthole was wide open. I had not noticed it when I went to bed. And the stateroom was damp, too. Damp, said he. Whereabouts are you? One hundred and five. To my surprise, the doctor started visibly and stared at me. What is the matter, I asked. Oh, nothing, he answered. Only everybody has complained of that stateroom for the last three trips. I shall complain, too, I said. It has certainly not been properly aired. It is a shame. I don't believe it can be helped, answered the doctor. I believe there is something. Well, it's not my business to frighten passengers. You need not be afraid of frightening me, 
I replied. I can stand any amount of damp. If I should get a bad cold, I will come to you. I offered the doctor a cigar, which he took and examined very critically. It's not so much the damp, he remarked. However, I dare say you will get on very well. Have you a roommate? Yes, a deuce of a fellow who bolts out in the middle of the night and leaves the door open. Again, the doctor glanced curiously at me. Then he lit the cigar and looked grave. Did he come back? he asked presently. Yes, I was asleep, but I waked up, and I heard him moving. Then I felt cold and went to sleep again. This morning I found the porthole open. Look here, said the doctor quietly. I don't care much for this ship. I don't care a rap for her reputation. I tell you what I will do. I have a good-sized place up here. I will share it with you, though I don't know you from Adam. I was very much surprised at the proposition. I could not imagine why he should take such a sudden interest in my welfare. However, his manner, as he spoke of the ship, was peculiar. You are a very good doctor, I said, but really, I believe even now the cabin could be aired or cleaned out or something. Why do you not care for the ship? We are not superstitious in our profession, sir, replied the doctor, but the sea makes people so. I don't want to prejudice you, and I don't want to frighten you. But if you will take my advice, you will move in here. I would as soon see you overboard, he said earnestly, as know that you or any other man was to sleep in 105. Good gracious, why? I asked. Just because on the three last trips the people who have slept there actually have gone overboard, he answered gravely. The intelligence was startling and exceedingly unpleasant, I confess. I looked hard at the doctor to see whether he was making game of me, but he looked perfectly serious. I thanked him warmly for his offer, but told him I intended to be the exception to the rule by which everyone who slept in that particular stateroom went overboard. He did not say much, but looked as grave as ever, and hinted that, before we got across, I should probably reconsider his proposal. In the course of time we went to breakfast, at which only an inconsiderable number of passengers assembled. I noticed that one or two of the officers who breakfasted with us looked grave. After breakfast I went into my stateroom in order to get a book. The curtains of the upper berth were still closely drawn. Not a sound was to be heard. My roommate was probably still asleep. As I came out, I met the steward, whose business it was to look after me. He whispered that the captain wanted to see me, and then scuttled away down the passage, as if very anxious to avoid any questions. I went toward the captain's cabin, and found him waiting for me. Sir, said he, I want to ask a favor of you. I answered that I would do anything to oblige him. Your roommate has disappeared, he said. He is known to have turned in early last night. Did you notice anything extraordinary in his manner? The question coming as it did an exact confirmation of the fears the doctor had expressed half an hour earlier, staggered me. "'You don't mean to say he has gone overboard?' I asked. "'I fear he has,' answered the captain. "'This is the most extraordinary thing,' I began. "'Why?' he asked. "'He is the fourth, then,' I explained, in answer to another question from the captain. I explained, without mentioning the doctor, that I had heard the story concerning 105. He seemed very much annoyed at hearing that I knew of it. I told him what had occurred in the night. "'What you say,' he replied, "'coincides almost exactly with what was told me "'by the roommates of two of the other three. "'They bolt out of bed and run down the passage. Two of them were seen to go overboard by the watch. "'We stopped and lowered boats, but they were not found. "'Nobody, however, saw or heard the man who was lost last night, "'if he is really lost.' The steward, who is a superstitious fellow, perhaps, and expected something to go wrong, went to look for him this morning. 
and found his berth empty, but his clothes lying about just as he had left them. The steward was the only man on board who knew him by sight, and he has been searching everywhere for him. He has disappeared. Now, sir, I want to beg you not to mention the circumstance to any of the passengers. I don't want the ship to get a bad name, and nothing hangs about an ocean-goer like stories of suicides. You shall have your choice of any one of the officers' cabins you like, including my own, for the rest of the passage. Is that a fair bargain? Very, said I, and I am much obliged to you. But since I am alone and have the stateroom to myself, I would rather not move. If the steward would take out that unfortunate man's things, I would as lief stay where I am. I will not say anything about the matter, and I think I can promise you that I will not follow my roommate. The captain tried to dissuade me from my intention, but I preferred having a stateroom alone to being the chum of any officer on board. I did not know whether I acted foolishly, but if I had taken his advice I should have had nothing more to tell. There would have remained the disagreeable coincidence of several suicides occurring among men who had slept in the same cabin, but that would have been all. That was not the end of the matter, however, by any means. I obstinately made up my mind that I would not be disturbed by such tales, and I even went so far as to argue the question with the captain. There was something wrong about the stateroom, I said. It was rather damp. The porthole had been left open last night. My roommate might have been ill when he came on board, and he might have become delirious after he went to bed. He might even now be hiding somewhere on board and might be found later. The place ought to be aired and the fastening of the port looked to. If the captain would give me leave, I would see that what I thought necessary were done immediately. Of course you have a right to stay where you are if you please, he replied, rather petulantly. But I wish you would turn out and let me lock the place up and be done with it. I did not see it in the same light, and left the captain after promising to be silent concerning the disappearance of my companion. The latter had had no acquaintances on board, and was not missed in the course of the day. Towards evening I met the doctor again, and he asked me whether I had changed my mind. I told him I had not. Then you will before long, he said, very gravely. Chapter 3 We played whist in the evening, and I went to bed late. I will confess now that I felt a disagreeable sensation when I entered my stateroom. I could not help thinking of the tall man I had seen on the previous night, who was now dead, drowned, tossing about in the long swell, two or three hundred miles astern. His face rose very distinctly before me as I undressed, and I even went so far as to draw back the curtains of the upper berth, as though to persuade myself that he was actually gone. I also bolted the door of the stateroom. Suddenly I became aware that the porthole was open and fastened back. This was more than I could stand. I hastily threw on my dressing gown and went in search of Robert, the steward of my passage. I was very angry, I remember, and when I found him I dragged him roughly to the door of 105 and pushed him towards the open porthole. What the deuce do you mean, you scoundrel, by leaving that port open every night? Don't you know it is against the regulations? Don't you know that if the sea healed and the water began to come in, ten men could not shut it? I will report you to the captain, you blackguard. For endangering the ship. I was exceedingly wroth. The man trembled and turned pale, and then began to shut the round glass plate with the heavy brass fittings. Why don't you answer me? I said roughly. If you please, sir, faltered Robert, there's nobody on board as can keep this ear port shut at night. You can try it yourself, sir. I ain't a going to stop any longer on board of this vessel, sir. I ain't indeed. But if I was you, sir, I'd just clear out and go sleep with the surgeon, or something, I would. Look here, sir. Is that fastened what you might call securely or not, sir? 
Try it, sir. See if it will move a hinge. I tried the port and found it perfectly tight. Well, sir, continued Robert triumphantly, I wager my reputation as an A-1 steward that in arf an hour it will be open again. Fasten back, too, sir. That's the horrible thing. Fasten back. I examined the great screw and the looped nut that ran on it. If I find this open the night, Robert, I will give you a sovereign. It is not possible. You may go. Sovereign, did you say, sir? Very good, sir. Thank you, sir. Good night, sir. Pleasant repose, sir, and all manner of enchanting dreams, sir. Robert scuttled away, delighted at being released. Of course, I thought he was trying to account for his negligence by a silly story intended to frighten me, and I disbelieved him. The consequence was that he got his sovereign, and I spent a very peculiarly unpleasant night. I went to bed, and five minutes after I had rolled myself up in my blankets, the inexorable Robert extinguished the light that burned steadily behind the ground-glass pane of the door. I lay quite still in the dark trying to go to sleep, but I soon found that impossible. It had been some satisfaction to be angry with the steward, and the diversion had banished that unpleasant sensation I had at first experienced when I thought of the drowned man who had been my chum. But I was no longer sleepy, and I lay awake for some time, occasionally glancing at the porthole, which I could just see from where I lay, and which, in the darkness, looked like a faintly luminous soup-plate suspended in blackness. I believe I must have lain there for an hour, and, as I remember, I was just dozing into sleep when I was roused by a draft of cold air, and by distinctly feeling the spray of the sea blown upon my face. I started to my feet, and not having allowed in the dark for the motion of the ship, I was instantly thrown violently across the stateroom upon the couch which was placed beneath the porthole. I recovered myself immediately, however, and climbed upon my knees. The porthole was again wide open and fastened back. Now these things are facts. I was wide awake when I got up, and I should certainly have been waked by the fall had I still been dozing. Moreover, I bruised my elbows and knees badly, and the bruises were there on the following morning to testify to the fact, if I myself had doubted it. The porthole was wide open and fastened back, a thing so unaccountable that I remember very well feeling astonishment rather than fear when I discovered it. I at once closed the plate again and screwed down the loop nut with all my strength. It was very dark in the stateroom. I reflected that the port had certainly been opened within an hour after Robert had at first shut it in my presence, and I determined to watch it and see whether it would open again. Those brass fittings are very heavy and by no means easy to move. I could not believe that the clump had been turned by the shaking of the screw. I stood peering out through the thick glass at the alternate white and gray streaks of the sea that foamed beneath the ship's side. I must have remained there a quarter of an hour. Suddenly, as I stood, I distinctly heard something moving behind me in one of the berths. And a moment afterwards, just as I turned instinctively to look, though I could, of course, see nothing in the darkness, I heard a very faint groan. I sprang across the stateroom and tore the curtains of the upper berth aside, thrusting in my hands to discover if there was anyone there. There was someone. I remember that the sensation as I put my hands forward was as though I was plunging them into the air of a damp cellar and from behind the curtains came a gust of wind that smelled horribly of stagnant seawater. I laid hold of something that was the shape of a man's arm, but was smooth and wet and icy cold. But suddenly, as I pulled, the creature sprang violently forward against me, a clammy, oozy mass, and it seemed to me, heavy and wet, yet endowed with a sort of supernatural strength. I reeled across the stateroom, and in an instant the door opened and the thing rushed out. I had not had time to be frightened, 
and quickly recovering myself I sprang through the door and gave chase at the top of my speed, but I was too late. Ten yards before me I could see, I am sure I saw it, a dark shadow moving in the dimly lighted passage. Quickly as the shadow of a fast horse thrown before a dog cart by the lamp on a dark night. But in a moment it had disappeared, and I found myself holding on to the polished rail that ran along the bulkhead where the passage turned towards the companion. My hair stood on end, and the cold perspiration rolled down my face. I am not ashamed of it in the least. I was very badly frightened. Still, I doubted my senses, and pulled myself together. It was absurd, I thought. The Welsh rarebit I had eaten had disagreed with me. I had been in a nightmare. I made my way back to the stateroom and entered it with an effort. The whole place smelled of stagnant seawater, as it had when I had waked on the previous evening. It required my utmost strength to go in and grope among my things for a box of wax lights. As I lighted a railway reading lantern, which I always carry in case I want to read after the lamps are out, I perceived that the porthole was again open, and a sort of creeping horror began to take possession of me, which I had never felt before, nor wished to feel again. But I got a light and proceeded to examine the upper berth, expecting to find it drenched with seawater. But I was disappointed. The bed had been slept in, and the smell of the sea was strong, but the bedding was as dry as a bone. I fancied that Robert had not had the courage to make the bed after the accident of the previous night. It had all been a hideous dream. I drew the curtains back as far as I could and examined the place very carefully. It was perfectly dry, but the porthole was open again. With a sort of dull bewilderment of horror, I closed it and screwed it down, and thrusting my heavy stick through the brass loop, wrenched it with all of my might till the thick metal began to bend under the pressure. Then I hooked my reading lantern into the red velvet at the end of the couch and sat down to recover my senses, if I could. I sat there all night, unable to think of rest, hardly able to think at all. But the porthole remained closed, and I did not believe it would now open again without the application of considerable force. The morning dawned at last, and I dressed myself slowly, thinking over all that had happened in the night. It was a beautiful day, and I went on deck, glad to get out into the early, pure sunshine, and to smell the breeze from the blue water, so different from the noisome, stagnant odor of my stateroom. Instinctively, I turned aft towards the surgeon's cabin. There he stood with a pipe in his mouth, taking his morning airing precisely as on the preceding day. "'Good morning,' said he quietly, but looking at me with evident curiosity. "'Doctor, you are quite right,' said I. "'There is something wrong about that place.' "'I thought you would change your mind,' he answered rather triumphantly. "'You have had a bad night, eh? "'Shall I make you a pick-me-up? "'I have a capital recipe.' "'No, thanks,' I cried. "'But I would like to tell you what happened.' "'I then tried to explain as clearly as possible "'precisely what had occurred, "'not omitting to state that I had been scared "'as I had never been scared in my whole life before. "'I dwelt particularly on the phenomenon of the porthole, "'which was a fact to which I could testify, "'even if the rest had been an illusion.' I had closed it twice in the night, and the second time I had actually bent the brass in wrenching it with my stick. I believe I insisted a good deal on this point. "'You seem to think I am likely to doubt the story,' said the doctor, smiling at the detailed account of the state of the porthole. "'I do not doubt it in the least. I renew my invitation to you. Bring your traps here, and take half my cabin.' "'Come and take half of mine for one night,' I said. "'Help me get to the bottom of this thing.' "'You will get to the bottom of something else if you try,' answered the doctor. What? I asked. The bottom of the sea. I am going to leave this ship. It is not canny. 
"'Then you will not help me to find out?' "'Not I,' said the doctor quickly. "'It is my business to keep my wits about me, "'not to go fiddling about with ghosts and things.' "'Do you really believe it is a ghost?' I inquired rather contemptuously. But as I spoke, I remembered very well the horrible sensation of the supernatural which had got possession of me during the night. The doctor turned sharply on me. "'Have you any reasonable explanation of these things to offer?' he asked. "'No, you have not. Well, you say you will find an explanation. I say that you won't, sir, simply because there is not any.' "'But, my dear sir,' I retorted, "'do you, a man of science, mean to tell me that such things cannot be explained?' "'I do,' he answered stoutly and if they could, I would not be concerned in the explanation. I did not care to spend another night alone in the stateroom, and yet I was obstinately determined to get at the root of the disturbances. I do not believe there are many men who would have slept there alone after passing two such nights, but I made up my mind to try it, if I could not get anyone to share a watch with me. The doctor was evidently not inclined for such an experiment. He said he was a surgeon, and that in case any accident occurred on board— he must be always in readiness. He could not afford to have his nerves unsettled. Perhaps he was quite right, but I am inclined to think that his precaution was prompted by his inclination. On inquiry, he informed me that there was no one on board who would be likely to join me in my investigations, and after a little more conversation I left him. A little later I met the captain and told him my story. I said that if no one would spend the night with me, I would ask leave to have the light burning all night, and would try it alone. "'Look here,' said he. "'I will tell you what I will do. "'I will share your watch myself, "'and we will see what happens. "'It is my belief that we can find out between us. "'There may be some fellow skulking on board "'who steals a passage by frightening the passengers. "'It is just possible that there may be something queer "'in the carpentering of that berth. "'I suggested taking the ship's carpenter below "'and examining the place, "'but I was overjoyed at the captain's offer "'to spend the night with me.' He accordingly sent for the workman and ordered him to do anything I required. We went below at once. I had all the bedding cleared out of the upper berth, and we examined the place thoroughly to see if there was a board loose anywhere or a panel which could be opened or pushed aside. We tried the planks everywhere, tapped the flooring, unscrewed the fittings of the lower berth, and took it to pieces. In short, there was not a square inch of that stateroom which was not searched and tested. Everything was in perfect order, and we put everything back in its place. As we were finishing our work, Robert came to the door and looked in. "'Well, sir, find anything, sir?' he asked, with a ghastly grin. "'You are right about the porthole, Robert,' I said, and I gave him the promised sovereign. The carpenter did his work silently and skillfully, following my directions. When he had done, he spoke. "'I'm a plain man, sir,' he said. "'But it's my belief you had better just turn out your things, and let me run half a dozen four-inch screws through the door of this cabin.' "'There's no good never came out of this cabin yet, sir, and that's all about it. "'There's been four lives lost out of here to my own remembrance, and that in four trips. "'Better give it up, sir. Better give it up.' "'I will try it for one night more,' I said. "'Better give it up, sir. Better give it up.' "'It's a precious bad job,' repeated the workman, putting his tools in his bag and leaving the cabin. "'But my spirits had risen considerably at the prospect of having the captain's company.' and I made up my mind not to be prevented from going to the end of the strange business. I abstained from Welsh rarebits and grog that evening, and did not even join in the customary game of whist. I wanted to be quite sure of my nerves, and my vanity made me anxious to make a good figure in the captain's eyes. Chapter 4 The captain was one of those splendidly tough and cheerful specimens of seafaring humanity, 
whose combined courage, hardihood, and calmness and difficulty leads them naturally into high positions of trust. He was not the man to be led away by an idle tale, and the mere fact that he was willing to join me in the investigation was proof that he thought there was something seriously wrong, which could not be accounted for on ordinary theories, nor laughed down as a common superstition. To some extent, too, his reputation was at stake, as well as the reputation of the ship. It is no light thing to lose passengers overboard, and he knew it. About ten o'clock that evening, as I was smoking a last cigar, he came up to me and drew me aside from the beat of the other passengers who were patrolling the deck in the warm darkness. "'This is a serious matter, Mr. Brisbane,' he said. "'We must make up our minds either way, to be disappointed or to have a pretty rough time of it. You see, I cannot afford to laugh at the affair, and I ask you to sign your name to a statement of whatever occurs. If nothing happens tonight, we will try it again tomorrow, and next day. Are you ready?' So we went below and entered the stateroom. As we went in, I could see Robert the steward, who stood a little further down the passage, watching us with his usual grin, as though certain that something dreadful was about to happen. The captain closed the door behind us and bolted it. "'Suppose we put your portmanteau before the door,' he suggested. "'One of us can sit on it. Nothing can get out, then. Is the port screwed down?' I found it as I had left it in the morning. Indeed, Without using a lever, as I had done, no one could have opened it. I drew back the curtains of the upper berth so that I could see well into it. By the captain's advice, I had lighted my reading lantern and placed it so that it shone upon the white sheets above. He insisted upon sitting on the portmanteau, declaring that he wished to be able to swear that he had sat before the door. Then he requested me to search the stateroom thoroughly, an operation very soon accomplished, as it consisted merely in looking beneath the lower berth and under the couch below the porthole. The spaces were quite empty. It is impossible for any human being to get in, I said, or for any human being to open the port. Very good, said the captain calmly. If we see anything now, it must be either imagination or something supernatural. I sat down on the edge of the lower berth. The first time it happened, said the captain, crossing his legs and leaning back against the door, was in March. The passenger who slept here in the upper berth turned out to have been a lunatic. At all events, he was known to have been a little touched, and he had taken his passage without the knowledge of his friends. He rushed out in the middle of the night and threw himself overboard before the officer who had the watch could stop him. We stopped and lowered a boat. It was a quiet night just before that heavy weather came on, and we could not find him. Of course, his suicide was afterwards accounted for on the ground of his insanity." "'I suppose that often happens,' I remarked rather absently. "'Not often, no,' said the captain. "'Never before in my experience, though I have heard of it happening on board of other ships. Well, as I was saying, that occurred in March. On the very next trip—' "'What are you looking at?' he asked, stopping suddenly in his narration. "'I believe I gave no answer. My eyes were riveted upon the porthole. It seemed to me that the brass loop-nut was beginning to turn very slowly upon the screw.' So slowly, however, that I was not sure it moved at all. I watched it intently, fixing its position in my mind and trying to ascertain whether it changed. Seeing where I was looking, the captain looked too. "'It moves!' he exclaimed in a tone of conviction. "'No, it does not,' he added, after a minute. "'If it were the jarring of the screw,' said I, "'it would have opened during the day. "'But I found it this evening jammed tight as I left it this morning. "'I rose and tried the nut. "'It was certainly loosened.' "'for by an effort I could move it with my hands. "'The queer thing,' said the captain, 
is that the second man who is lost is supposed to have gone through that very port. We had a terrible time over it. It was in the middle of the night, and the weather was very heavy. There was an alarm that one of the ports was open, and the sea running in. I came below and found everything flooded, the water pouring in every time she rolled, and the whole port swinging from the top bolts, not the porthole in the middle. Well, we managed to shut it. But the water did some damage. Ever since that, the place smells of seawater from time to time. We supposed the passenger had thrown himself out, though the Lord only knows how he did it. The steward kept telling me that he cannot keep anything shut here. Upon my word, I can smell it now, cannot you? He inquired, sniffing the air suspiciously. Yes, distinctly, I said, and I shuddered, as that same odor of stagnant seawater grew stronger in the cabin. Now, to smell like this, the place must be damp, I continued, and yet when I examined it with the carpenter this morning, everything was perfectly dry. It is most extraordinary. Hello. My reading lantern, which had been placed in the upper berth, was suddenly extinguished. There was still a good deal of light from the pane of ground glass near the door, behind which loomed the regulation lamp. The ship rolled heavily, and the curtain of the upper berth swung far out into the stateroom and back again. I rose quickly from my seat on the edge of the bed, and the captain at the same moment started to his feet with a loud cry of surprise. I had turned with the intention of taking down the lantern to examine it, when I heard his exclamation, and immediately afterwards his call for help. I sprang towards him. He was wrestling with all his might with the brass loop of the port. It seemed to turn against his hands in spite of all his efforts. I caught up my cane, a heavy oak stick I always used to carry, and thrust it through the ring and bore on it with all my strength. But the strong wood snapped suddenly, and I fell upon the couch. When I rose again, the port was wide open, and the captain was standing with his back against the door, pale to the lips. "'There is something in that berth,' he cried in a strange voice, his eyes almost starting from his head. "'Hold the door while I look. It shall not escape us, whatever it is.' But instead of taking his place, I sprang upon the lower bed and seized something which lay in the upper berth. It was something ghostly, horrible beyond words, and it moved in my grip. It was like the body of a man long drowned, and yet it moved, and had the strength of ten men living. But I gripped it with all my might, the slippery, oozy, horrible thing. The dead white eyes seemed to stare at me out of the dusk. The putrid odor of rank seawater was about it and its shiny hair hung in foul, wet curls over its dead face. I wrestled with the dead thing. It thrust itself upon me and forced me back and nearly broke my arms. It wound its corpse's arms around my neck, the living death, and overpowered me, so that I at last cried aloud and fell, and left my hold. As I fell, the thing sprang across me, and seemed to throw itself upon the captain. When I last saw him on his feet, his face was white and his lips set. It seemed to me that he struck a violent blow at the dead being, and then he too fell forward upon his face with an inarticulate cry of horror. The thing paused an instant, seeming to hover over his prostrate body, and I could have screamed again for very fright, but I had no voice left. The thing vanished suddenly, and it seemed to my disturbed senses that it made its exit through the open port, though how that was possible considering the smallness of the aperture is more than anyone can tell. I lay a long time upon the floor, and the captain lay beside me. At last I partially recovered my senses and moved, and instantly I knew that my arm was broken, the small bone of the left forearm near the wrist. I got upon my feet somehow, and with my remaining hand I tried to raise the captain. 
He groaned and moved, but at last came to himself. He was not hurt, but he seemed badly stunned. "'Well, do you want to hear any more?' "'There is nothing more.' "'That is the end of the story.' The carpenter carried out his scheme of running half a dozen four-inch screws through the door of 105. "'And if ever you take a passage in the Kamchatka, you may ask for a berth in that stateroom. You will be told that it is engaged. Yes, it is engaged by that dead thing.' I finished the trip in the surgeon's cabin. He doctored my broken arm and advised me not to fiddle about with ghosts and things any more. The captain was very silent, and never sailed again in that ship, though it is still running. And I will not sail in her either. It was a very disagreeable experience, and I was very badly frightened, which is a thing I do not like. That is all. That is how I saw a ghost. If it was a ghost, it was dead, anyhow. End of The Upper Berth by F. Marion Crawford Recording by Chris Pyle Is stranger than fiction And this is the proof This is Ripley's Believe it or not Prince Pyotr Lapukin of Russia was awarded his country's highest honor for humanism because he prohibited flogging of people over 70 years old Believe it or not in a moment, I'll tell you about a strange omen. Sailors have always been superstitious, and perhaps one reason is the story of the Paris Sea Brown. She was a riverboat plying the waters between Plaquemine and Cincinnati. While tied up at Plaquemine in July 1889, two rats were seen slithering down the lines off the boat. Three crewmen who saw this, prompted by superstition, also walked off the only survivors of the Paris Sea Brown, which sailed and vanished, believe it or not. And we are back. That was The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford. I hope you enjoyed that story. Oh, hold on. I'm getting a message. What?
All right, I think we are back on the air. If you are listening and you can hear my yours, the dulcet tones of yours cruelly, please say so now. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, we are currently experiencing technical difficulties with our tune-in feed. I don't know why, because as far as I can tell, um, I, the information I gave to Kenny is correct. So we're going to have to look into this. Um, so for now, for the time being, your best bet is going to be to use the Live 365 um, uh, feed. Um, and that includes tomorrow uh, for our programs. But anyway, uh, since we got such a delay, uh, again, I'm sorry. Um, hopefully we'll have more information soon. I will be monitoring the situation with TuneIn. Um, Oh, you know, as long as I can tonight, and of course tomorrow while I'm at work. Um, but again, for the time being, please make sure to use the uh, live 365 feed. If you uh, if you're listening now, you got it. <laughs> um, so let me just kill that, uh, and I think we can also kill. Uh, the music. So yeah, long story short, we are trying to effect some changes uh, on our tune-in page, including some updated information. Because I can tell you, uh, first of all, Mitch Check Radio with Adam Hebert never existed, and Mike Check Radio with Adam Hebert no longer exists. Um, it's basically a ghost that still haunts me to this day. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed that that uh, um, seven years, but I'm done with political talk. Um, it's a rat race. Um, and, and the thing is that it's also a rigged game. If you're liberal, you can't make it liberal talk. They, they will not allow you to. So... Uh, so anyway, we are going to, uh, get back to it. Unfortunately, we're going to have to have a, uh, truncated program tonight. Um, to it, we will do the Magnus Archives, um, and then the rest of the stuff that would have been in the, in the, in the radio show were it not for the, you know, 20 some odd minutes of, uh, lost time. Uh, that will be in the Oddcast edition. Of Dread Time Stories. What do you think of that? For the... For... That. The Oddcast edition. Yeah, I think... I, I You know, it works. But does it work enough? Anyway. Uh, so, again. Just to reiterate. Um, we will be doing... Uh, a, a, a... Shortened... Um, program tonight. I'm sorry. I know. I, I you know. I, people seem to listen to this. I don't know why. I suck as a broadcaster. Um, but uh, thank you to my one listener. And uh, so yeah. Again, don't forget Oddcat. The Oddcat. The Dread Time Stories Oddcast Edition will contain um, old-time radio pick and um, the podcast pick for this week. 
Although it probably won't have any of the fixins. So we're going to get right to it. Let me just, uh, is it this one? Yeah, it's that one. So we're just going to set that there. So we're going to get to... Oh, I got to load it. We're going to get to the Magnus Archives, episode 22, Colony. Remember last week, the story, the, the episode ended when Martin, one of the people who works for the Magnus Archives, shows up and drops something wet and squishy in front of our beloved narrator. Wait a minute. What happened? What was it? I think we're about to find out. Up next, the Magnus Archives. Rusty Quill presents the Magnus Archives. Episode 22, Colony. to make a statement about what happened to me. I mean, it, it's what we do. No, what we do is research statements, usually those made by liars and the mentally unwell. Well, I need to tell someone what happened, and you can vouch for the soundness of my mind, can't you? That is beside the point. Look, if you're that worried about it, it doesn't need to be an official statement. I just, I want a record of it. Fine, you're right, I suppose. Statement of Martin Blackwood, Archival Assistant at the Magnus Institute, London, regarding... A, a close encounter with something I believe to have once been Jane Prentice. Recorded direct from subject, 12th March 2016. Statement begins. Well, a couple of weeks ago, you were looking into that statement about the spider that wouldn't go away. Carlos... Vittery, I think his name was. I knew there was something not right about the whole thing from the off. I said it probably wasn't natural, him dying and being encased in web when he was found, and I stand by that. Though it wasn't anything to do with spiders that ended up after me. Almost wish it had been. <laughs> I, I like spiders. Big ones, at least. You know, you know the ones that you can see some fur on. I actually think they're sort of cute, Please so... stick to the statement, Martin. Right. So, you asked me to investigate that flat that he lived in down in Boothby Road, and that's what I do. I, I take the northern line up to Archway and walk the rest of the way down there. 
It's still quite early then, and I find the building easily enough. It looks just like Mr. Vittery said it did in his statement. And there's a big, thick door on the front, and looks like it leads into the hall and then to the flats. Obviously it's locked, so I try the buzzers, but nobody's answering, and I figure they're probably all out at work. I didn't want to come back to you without due diligence, though. I've learned that lesson. <laughs> so I have a look around the place to see if there's another way I could go in and have a poke around. And sure enough, as I walk around, I spy a basement window that's slightly ajar. It isn't much, but I reckon I can squeeze through it if I try. As I get closer, though, I notice there's something on the ground nearby. The sunlight catches on it, and at first I think it must be a screw or a little piece of metal that someone's thrown away. I get closer, and I see that it looks more like a worm of some sort. It's maybe an inch long with a silver segmented body that goes black at one end, almost like it's been burned. It's very still, so I kneel down to have a look, and as I get closer, it begins to twitch. Its darkened head twists towards me, and it starts to writhe in this kind of eerie way, moving along the ground very fast and straight at me. And, well, to be honest, I, I freaked out a bit. I, I leapt to my feet and I just stamped on it before I had a chance to really think about what I was doing. I felt it pop beneath my shoe with a faint cracking sound, like stepping on an eggshell. And a thick black slime started to ooze from where I stepped on it. Now, obviously I was pretty disgusted by the whole thing, so I take a moment to scrape off what's left of it and check around for any more. There's none that I can see, so after composing myself for a couple of seconds, I continue on my way into the basement. The window was small. Quite a tight squeeze for me, I mean. I'm not exactly the smallest guy in the world, I know, and it's only once I'm inside that I realise it's only at ground level for the outside, so I take a bit of a tumble onto the basement floor. Luckily, I get away without hurting myself and start to have a quick look around the room. It's pretty big, and it looks like it goes under pretty much the whole building, but the light from the window doesn't get very far inside, so most of the place was very dark. And I realise that I don't have any sort of torch with me, and I can't see any light switch on the nearby wall, so I've no real way of looking around. I almost decided to turn around and try to climb out back the way I came, not least because the place had a really bad feeling to it. Like, like there, was this, there was this musty smell... And the air was dusty and thick. Also, you're going to think I'm an idiot when I say this, but I didn't like the way my shadow moved. The light from the window behind me cast it pretty clearly on the floor, and looking at it, I swear, the edges seemed to move. It was like a, like a, like an undulation, like, like they were being shifted by something. I mean... Look, I know you hate the word, but it was really spooky. Look, anyway, that was when I saw the bottom of the stairs leading up, and I, I didn't waste any time heading up them. The door at the top wasn't locked, so I find myself in the ground floor hall of the building, and I'll admit it was a real relief to get out of that place and into the well-lit main building. I could have left at that point, Pro probably should have, but... I decided to try one more time to see if I could talk to the current occupants of Mr. Vittery's old flat. Due diligence and, and all that. So I, I head up to number four and give a few knocks on the door. I didn't expect anyone to be in, 
but the door's opened by an old woman in a headscarf. I tried to ask her some questions, but it became clear she didn't really speak much in the way of English. After a few seconds, she just shook her head and pointed behind me, closing the door unceremoniously. Turning round, I see a large, dark-skinned man in a very nice-looking suit eyeing me with a bit of suspicion. He introduced himself as Yasir Kundi and said he owned the building and became slightly more cooperative after I lied to him and told him that one of the upstairs residents had buzzed me in. I told him why I was there, although obviously I didn't mention breaking in or the institute or what we do because I find people often don't understand or respect that out in the real world. I just said that following Mr Vittery's death I was looking into some aspects of his history and did he remember anything about the time he was a tenant. Mr Cundy was about as helpful as you might expect. Told me Carlos Vittery had lived there, seemed weird, always shut himself up, but was never a problem, paid his rent on time, used to have a cat, but it now lived with the Sanderson couple in number two. He seemed genuinely surprised to hear about the death, but wasn't able to shed any sort of light on it. It wasn't a lot, really. Still about as much as I might have expected, so I headed back to the Institute and updated you on what I'd found. And, well, as I'm sure you're aware, that was the last time I saw you before I disappeared. I was heading home when I got to thinking, and I was worried I hadn't really done enough investigation for you, since I got so freaked out by the basement and all. And then I remembered that I'd seen quite a lot of spider webs in the brief time I was down there, and maybe I should check it out again. I mean, like I said, I'm not really afraid of spiders, so I went back for another look. It was dark when I got to Boothby Road, but I saw that the basement window was still open. I'd made sure to bring a torch this time, and after a quick check to make sure nobody was watching, I climbed inside. I knew right then that I'd made a huge mistake. The air was just as musty as it had been before, but it seemed warmer than it had been, which was strange, because outside it was a cold February night. I turned on my torch and shone it around, but was disappointed to see that all those spider webs that I remembered seemed old and unremarkable. If there were spiders there, none were easily seen, and for a second I thought that the only interesting part of my return trip was that it would land me in prison if I wasn't careful. Then I heard movement from the other side of the basement. It was faint, just a rustling, really. I didn't want to check it out, I really didn't. I've catalogued and looked into enough of these cases to know that following the noise is always a really, really bad idea. But, I mean, it's my job, isn't it? <laughs> so I slowly moved towards it, keeping my torch held in front of me like a, like a shield beam was so much weaker than I had thought it was, and it only lit up the stark outlines of the shelves and detritus that littered the basement. The movement had stopped, or at least I couldn't hear it anymore, and I'd almost made up my mind to just turn around and leave when my torch fell across what looked like a human figure. It appeared to be a woman. She was facing away from me, apparently staring at the corner of the wall. Her hair was long and black, 
though it was so twisted and dirty it was hard to tell if that was its original colour. She wore a threadbare grey overcoat, though beneath it her legs were bare and covered with what I at first thought were spots. In her right hand she held a stained green handkerchief. She stood there, totally still, either not noticing the torchlight that was shining on her or not caring. I, I didn't move a muscle. And with a quick, jerky movement, she brought the handkerchief to her face and coughed. I mean, I, I call it a cough because that's what it looked like, but it didn't sound like a cough. It was more like... like you, you know in a nature documentary, when, when the lion's caught something and it's, it's ripping it apart, that noise of wet meat. Yeah, it was, it was like that. I saw something drop from the handkerchief onto the floor. It's about an inch long silver and it wriggled as it fell. I screamed. I'm not ashamed to admit it, though looking back I really wish I hadn't. Her head snapped towards me and she locked eyes with me. Her pupils seemed ragged and collapsed and when she smiled her teeth were chipped and blackened. I started to stagger backwards, expecting at any moment for her to lunge at me, but instead she slowly reached up and let the overcoat fall to the floor. Her skin was pale, almost grey and full of... Sorry, still makes me sick to think about it. It was full of holes, deep black holes, just honeycombing every bit of flesh like a wasp's nest. I could see those thin silver worms crawling in and out and their black tips twitching as they squirmed through that pitted meat. I mean it wasn't human. It can't have been. She, it, took a step towards me and as it did so the worms began to writhe out of every hole and cavity, falling to the floor in a cascading wave and starting to crawl towards me with, with alarming speed. I had the oddest thought then, and even as I backed away towards the stairs, I started to get my phone out. The daft thing is, I wasn't even going to call anyone for help, I just wanted to take a picture of the thing, to prove to you that it happened. You're always so quick to dismiss these statements, and I wanted proof for you. Except, well, I managed to drop it, of course. <laughs> Just as I was bringing up the camera app, one of the worm things reached at me and leapt at my face. That thing jumped literally six feet through the air at my face. It missed me, but I was so taken aback that I fell onto the stairs behind me and dropped my phone to the ground. I, I didn't stop to pick it up, I just fled up the stairs as fast as I could. Obviously, the door at the top wasn't locked. If it had been, I'm sure I'd be dead. Or worse. I ran faster than I ever have in my life. I've never been good at running, and every moment expected to feel something wriggling up my leg. I didn't stop running until I was sat in the underground and had checked every inch of my seat for worms. I live in Stockwell, right at the other end of the Northern Line, so by the time I got home I was starting to feel a bit safer, though utterly exhausted. I knew that there was no way I was going to be able to work the next day, but... Without my phone, I couldn't let you know. I mean, I don't have a landline. Who does anymore? But I couldn't bring myself to stay awake long enough to send an email, so I just collapsed, fully clothed, onto the bed.
I don't know how long I slept for, but it was still dark when the knocking woke me up. Don't know if it was the same night or if I'd slept right through the day. Either way, I dragged myself up and as I sat there, it all came back to me. What I'd seen and I, I shuddered. I tried to tell myself I'd imagined it. Maybe I'd overreacted to finding a homeless woman sleeping in the basement. Maybe she was sick and needed an ambulance. God, maybe I'd left her to die. There was more knocking and I reached up to flick the light on. But when I did, so nothing happened. I tried the lamp next to my bed, but again, nothing. Looking round, I saw that none of my electronics seemed to be on. There must have been some sort of power cut. Again, someone knocked at the door. Maybe it was one of my neighbours coming to check whether I'd lost the power. So I shuffle over towards the door and reached for the handle. As I was about to open it, I got a sudden chill and stopped. What if she was outside, waiting? I mean, the, the worms that made a hive of her body, eager, striving to make me one as well. I thought of that awful case you had us looking into where that woman burst into worms and I realised that this woman must be that Jane Prentice you were telling us about. I never had one of those peepholes added so I couldn't see what was out there. But as I took a step back I saw something on the floor crawling out from underneath the door. It was a small silver looking worm. I think I might have lost my mind a bit then. It all feels very strange, blurry. I, I remember stamping and stamping as, as more made their way under my doorway. I, I remember grabbing every towel, sock, bit of fabric, scrap that I could find, stuffing them under the door into the cracks around the window, anything where a slender worm might crawl, I made airtight. And then I sat there and waited. I still had no power, no phone, no way to communicate with the outside. This went on for 13 days. Every time I thought it might be safe to try and leave, I'd hear that knocking at my door come back. Luckily, there was no problem with my water supply, so I had plenty to drink. I'm just glad none of them thought to come up through the pipes. I ate a lot of ready meals cans, that kind of thing, so I had food, although after the first few days I had to start rationing. If I ever see another can of peaches. But I, I think the worst part was the boredom. No internet, no phone, no power. I read the handful of print books I owned several times. I, I didn't really sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I'd start to feel something was crawling up my legs, and I'd have to sit up and check. Other times I'd be awoken by that knocking. I spent a lot of time trying to remember what you told me about Jane Prentice when we were working on Tim Hodges' statement, but all I remembered was that she called herself to be a practicing witch and believed to be infected by a, a dangerous, unknown parasite. She never talked to me. I could have heard her clearly through the door, but she never made a sound apart from that knocking. From what I saw, maybe what was in her throat didn't leave room for a voice. Strangely, she never tried to break down my door, either. 
just knocked. She knocked and knocked and knocked. Finally, I woke up this morning and she was gone. I don't know exactly how I knew. I think she brought that musty smell with her and this morning I, I couldn't smell it. And there was no knocking. I mean, it still took me about four hours of checking and double-checking and listening at the letterbox before I got the nerve to actually open the door. But when I did, there was no one there. And I ran all the way here. Statement ends. You're sure about all of this, Martin? Look, I'm not going to lie to you about something like this, John. I like my job. Most of the time. Very well. In which case, there's a room in the archives I used to sleep when working late. I suggest you stay there for now. I'll talk to Elias about whether we can get extra security, but the archives have enough locks for now. It's also supposed to be humidity controlled, and though it hasn't been working for some time, it does mean it's well sealed. Nothing will be sneaking through any window cracks. Oh. Okay, thanks. Um, to be honest, I didn't expect you to take it seriously. You say you lost your phone two weeks ago. Uh, thereabouts. When I went back to the basement. Well, in that time I have received several text messages from your phone, saying you were ill with stomach problems. The last one said you thought it might be a parasite. Though my calls trying to follow up were never answered... So if this does involve Jane Prentice, then I take it deadly serious. Hang on. What? I just received another text message. From you. Keep him. We have had our fun. He will want to see it when the archivist's crimson fate arrives. What does that mean? means I ask Elias to hire some extra security. I should probably warn Sasha and Tim as well. I'll, I'll also have a look through the archives, as I believe we should have a statement from Miss Prentice herself in here somewhere. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter. And directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening.
in a cow fighting contest in Aosta, Italy. The animals fight more fiercely because they're forced to drink a mixture of wine and gunpowder. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a dog who betrayed a king. A dog is man's best friend? Not as far as King Richard III was concerned. Muffy, the pet greyhound of King Richard, on the day the monarch was captured in the castle of Flint, ran to his master's bitterest rival, the Earl of Lancaster, and licked the Earl's hand affectionately, the dog thus becoming the very first follower of King Richard to switch allegiance away from his king. Believe it or not. Okay, and we're going to have to end the show. Unfortunately, we just do not have time to do anything else. Um, that said, I will remind everyone of the, uh, you know, uh, please consider tuning in to the many fine programs you can hear you can hear here on Radio for Humans. Um, we will be implementing a format change as soon as I remember how to do the clock wheels. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, but anyway, so, tomorrow tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern, time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and the Sues, followed immediately by From the Bunker with Jody Hamilton. Friday night, you'll be able to hear It Came from Cleveland, followed by an unnamed classic music, classic rock and 80s music show by, uh, by me, um, Saturday night. Starting at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, Paul's Memory Bank. And then uh, we're rebranding, folks. Uh, the show formerly known as Midnight Sun will begin at, uh, at midnight Eastern. That's 11 p.m. Central. And uh, it's going to rebrand under the name Radio Mayonaka, Radio Midnight. And of course, you can hear the Tim Carmel show every Monday and Wednesday morning at 8.30 and in prime time at 8. And I think that's all the programs you can hear here. Uh, unfortunately, we're having a bit of problems with uh, Second Chance Sundays. We may just cancel that block and turn Sundays into an old OTR day, but uh, we'll figure that out. So anyway, again, I apologize for the technical difficulties. Um, make sure for the time being, until you, until you know, until you receive word, that uh, the tune-in feed is working. Make sure you continue tuning in to these programs using the Live 365 um, link. This will be including the show notes. Um, and of course, don't forget that the Oddcast edition of this program will include all the content we did not get to play, including two, believe it or not, bumpers. And... Uh, the old time, the old time radio selection, which was a, a CBC Mystery Theater 
production of The Screaming Skull. And, of course, my podcast pick, which was, uh, which is the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Last week, remember, we did the Horror Babble podcast, which does, um, uh, public domain fantasy fiction. Um, this does original stuff. And so, yeah, we'll play that. But in the meantime, again, thank you everyone for listening. And, uh, until next week. Oh, wait, I forgot. Please don't forget that all incidental music heard on this program is brought to us courtesy of TabletopAudio.com, TabletopAudio.com, music forever you work, podcast, or play Dungeons & Dragons. All right, guys, thank you very much. Until next week, this is yours cruelly wishing you and yours unpleasant dreams.
Time to tell tales of the unaccountable, of apparitions by night and phantoms in shadow. Time to tell strange stories of fantasy and the supernatural. Mystery Theater presents The Screaming Skull, a tale of the supernatural by George Selverson, based on a story by E. Marion Crawford, and starring Tommy Tweed as the captain and Hugh Webster as James. the house, Captain? It is, James. Nice place for an old sea dog to retire to. It's a pretty little property, just the thing for an old sailor like me who's taken to gardening. <laughs> you won't be gardening in this weather. That's true, James. Let's get in out of the wet. Listen to the wind and the sea. You must feel right at home here. At home? Come in. Come in, James. Close the door. Right. Sit there by the fire. I'll put something in a glass to warm you. Wonderful. Ah, it's a night for a burning log on the hearth. And for Holland gin. (laughs) This is the same I brought Luke from Amsterdam 25 years ago. (laughs) He never touched a drop of it. Luke was your cousin, Captain Braddock, wasn't he? He was. That's how I came by this house. After he died and his boy Charlie was killed in South Africa, there were no relations left. Here now, see if this doesn't warm your blood, James. (laughs) Thank you. Wasn't there a Mrs. Pratt? Yes. uh, Yes, yes, there was. What happened to her? Well, she died before Luke. (coughs) 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 Oh, strong stuff, Captain. Listen. You can hear the tide. Gloomy sound, isn't it? Yes. Do you remember the German ship we sailed on? Did you hear that, Captain? Yes. Someone screamed. It must be from the beach. No, it isn't from the beach. Oh, someone may be in trouble. We'd best have a look. Sit down, James. No one's in trouble. Well, why do you say that? You said you heard it, too? What's interesting is that you heard it, James. What do you mean by that? There are always people who think it's the wind or my imagination. Then what was it? Put another stick on the fire, will you? Yes. It's only something to do with the wind and the tide. Yeah, this is good enough for old sailors like us, James. I don't think Mary Pratt was very happy here. Hmm. Might be a little gloomy for a woman at that. Poor woman. I suppose in a way I was responsible for her death. What's that, Captain? It was on a night like this. I was at home for a spell, waiting to take the Olympia out on her first trip. That voyage when she broke the record? No, that was the next one. But that did it. Hmm. 1892? In November. Mm Mm-hmm. In this very room it was. Oh, the weather was dirty. 
Pratt was in his usual bad temper, and poor Mary Pratt's dinner was a failure. You see that, Captain? My wife is trying to poison me. Luke, he's, he's joking, Mary. Oh, I wish he were joking. <laughs> Welsh rarebit, raw turnips, and half-boiled mutton. Charles, if you ever marry, don't marry a fool. You see what he thinks of me? You see how he goes on. On second thought, perhaps it's better to marry a woman foolish enough to poison you with Welsh rarebit. Instead of spun glass, a chopped horsehair. <laughs> oh, you see, Luke's only joking. After all, he's a doctor. He knows all the antidotes, eh, Luke? Not for some things. Oh, of course. There was that woman in Ireland, the one who did for three husbands before anyone suspected a thing. Be glad you aren't married to one like that, Luke. How did she manage it? Well, her fourth husband managed to keep awake after she drugged him and caught her at it. Caught her at what? Well, she had a little horn funnel, and she put it into his ear. Ho, 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 ho. This sounds rather ridiculous, old man. Well, that's what he thought, <laughs> until he saw her coming with a ladle filled with melted lead. That's rather funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. Charles, that's awful. Oh, don't you dare tell such a story here ever again. Yeah. In this very room it was. James, if I were you, I would never tell ugly stories about ingenious ways of killing people. Listen. What? You heard that sound again, Captain? No, that was the wind backing up to the southern again. I can tell by the sound. Are you trying to tell me that Mrs. Pratt killed her husband? No, she couldn't have. You see, she died that same November. Good heavens, man. Yes, Luke was a lonely man after that. Lonely? Oh, I could see it. I came to see him now and then. And he looked lonely? Oh, yes. Very worn and nervous. That last time I saw him, there was the thing about the dog. Thing about a dog? Yes. Luke was so thin, his head looked like a skull with parchment stretched over it. And his eyes had a sort of glare. He glared at me when I asked about the dog. I killed the dog. That sweet-tempered old bulldog. I could stand it no longer, Charles. Well, the, the dog was ill. No. But he used to climb into that chair where you're sitting now. Yes? That was my wife's chair, you know. Well, I know, Luke, but after all... You I... never saw him do it. Old Bumble used to sit there and stare at me. We'd stare at each other, thinking over old times. And then the fool dog would begin to shake all over and set up a howl as if he'd been shot and then he'd run and hide under the sideboard, making the strangest noises. Why, poor old Bumble. I couldn't stand it. He didn't suffer at all, Charles. I put dionine into his drink to make him sleep soundly, and then I chloroformed him gradually so that he couldn't have suffered even in a dream. He didn't suffer. Well, I... I believe you, Luke. He didn't suffer a bit. And it's been quieter since then. He said, It's been quieter since then. Now I know what he meant. 
He meant that he didn't hear that noise so often. Perhaps he thought at first that it was old Bumble in the yard howling at the moon. Perhaps that's what he thought. It's not that kind of noise at all, is it, James? That sound. What is it, Captain? Don't be frightened, man. It won't eat you. It's only a noise. And a noise never hurt anyone. That's all very well, but what is it? When I don't understand a thing, I call it a phenomenon. And I don't take it for granted that it's going to kill me. Besides, what is there to prove Luke killed his wife? Is there a connection? Did I say there was? Well, you were... What did they say she died of? She died in bed a few days after I told that story. But of what? A heart trouble. But you don't believe that? Why not? Luke called in another doctor and he believed it. But you don't. Of course I believe it. Only... Only... Pour yourself another drop and I'll show you something. I think I will. I keep it locked in this old roller-top desk of Luke's. That's where I found it, you know. Ah, here we are. You mean that pistol? No, no, no. That's the old pistol I bought in Rio for a souvenir when you and I went ashore. Remember the Leofric, James? Mm Mm-hmm. Grand vessel. Sailed. Those were the days, James. What were you going to show me? I imagine Luke was fond of deep-sea fishing. Probably used this for casting a sinker for a night line. Do you think, James? An iron ladle? You can see there it was hardened in the bottom of the bowl. The melted lead. Why, James, you dropped your drink. I'll get you another. You... Won't mention this, will you? After all, Luke's dead now, with an honest man's tombstone at his head. There was trouble enough about his death as it was. No reason for James Traherne to hear about a thing like this ladle. Here you are. Thanks. James Traherne? He's the sexton, and he works in my garden. Works in your garden. Oh, I I didn't tell you about that. It was when I retired and having inherited the property from poor old Luke, I moved in. This James Traherne showed me through the house and told me the story. And showed me the thing in the cupboard. A curious thing to keep in the cupboard? I mean, when you consider this here's the bedroom. This hat box? Hmm. Same as they found by old Luke down on the beach. When he died? Uh, That's right. You remember the verdict? By the hands or teeth of some person or animal unknown. I know. I know. I heard all about that. Some big dog chewed him to death. That don't horrify you, Captain. Oh, I suppose. I've seen a good deal around this world, however. Hmm. Have you ever seen a bit of interior decoration like this? What is it? Hat box. Open it up, Captain. Oh, you're you're very mysterious, Traherne. All right, I'll open it up. Uh, Very pretty and polished and white, ain't it, Captain? A skull. 
It's what it is, all right. Found by him when he was dead there on the beach. Oh, what of it? Luke was a doctor. It's not unusual for a doctor to have a thing like this. Mm, but it is unusual for a thing like this to roll. Uh, when he fell dead, mind you, not down the slope of the beach towards his feet, but up the slope of the beach toward his head. Oh, you what? It rolled up the beach. Oh, from where the open hat box was found. Oh, 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 oh. phenomenon. Mm, this here phenomenon lay right up against his poor throat, all broken and bruised by, like you say, Captain, some big dog. Uh, do you notice something else? No. Here, take it. Well? Give it a shake. Huh? Go on, shake it. Oh, 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 all right. Mm-hmm, no. Ain't that a peculiar sound? There's, there's something inside. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty, small, very nice shape to it. Perfect teeth. Well, it's, it's only a medical specimen. I wonder where the lower jaw got to. With them teeth, she would have had a pretty smile. Who did she, Captain? That's what he said. After that, I got something into my head. Oh, I don't mean anything supernatural. As far as that goes, I'd rather face any shape of ghost than a fog in the channel when it's crowded, eh, James? Oh, what was it you got into your head? No, no, there's no sense to it. Didn't she have a Christian burial? Well, certainly. She's lying in the churchyard where Treherne put her to rest. It's monstrous. To suppose her husband kept her skull in her old hat box in the bedroom. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Captain, you play me for a fool. Pour me another drink. Yes, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I suppose he had done. I mean, the ladle and the melted lead and all that. But then, why did he do this other thing? Yes. Why? He could have been afraid of something else that I told him when I told that story. What? Well, the woman that did for those three husbands, they dug up the three skulls, you know. And? And in each, there was a small lump of lead rattling around. That's what hanged her. I suppose he'd remember that was the vital evidence. <laughs> Captain Charlie Braddock. James? <laughs> you old fraud, you sea dog, you pirate, you old devil. <laughs> what, James? <laughs> Get me another drink, you dog. What is so funny? <laughs> you, you invite me here to this, this haunted-looking cottage of yours <laughs> by the gloomy sea, and you set me down by your fireplace <laughs> and spin me a yarn like... <laughs> <laughs> you old lying fraud of a sailor. Lord, he'd remember that was the vital evidence. I've often wondered how he managed it. What do you suppose he put in its place? Do you mean that sound came from your bedroom, James? 
Let me tell you about the night I tried to get rid of the thing. It's not happy anywhere else, you know. It wants to be in Mary Pratt's hat box in that cupboard. At least I think it does. I sleep in Luke's old surgery now, you know. But then when I first came, I slept in the bedroom. Well, I slept well. You know, an old sailor, no natural sound disturbs you. Not all the racket of a square rigger hove to in a heavy gale. But any unnatural sound, and you wake in a moment. That's how it was every night at exactly 17 minutes past three. I wonder if that was the hour she died. Then I would hear it and be exploded into a wakeful terror. What? Not again. I won't have that again. I, I, I won't stand this anymore. Now, I'm going to settle this. I'll take you and... Yes, the window. There. Here you go, at and all out the window. Heaven, blot out my ears, kill my hearing, deafen me, but never let me hear that again. I could not stop screaming. Then when I thought I would go mad, it fell silent. I sat on my bed, listening, waiting. Hours passed. Then I heard a totally unexpected sound. Someone at the door. You can't see the door from above. I called out. Who's there? Who is it? Who could it be, I thought. Oh, some old country fellow, stone deaf. I took my candle and went down to open the door. I set my candle down on the hall table. And then, when I opened the door, the wind blew it out. There was no one there. I shut the door. I lit the candle. There it was, at my feet, where the wind blew it in. The light and shadow from the candle playing in the hollows of it. So the eyes seemed to open and shut at me. We stared at each other. I spoke to it. What do you want? It wanted to go back to its cupboard. I knew that. But I stared at it. And I refused to move. I stared, and it stared back, and I waited. All right, all right, all right. I hurried outside. I found that box. 
I ran inside, put the thing in the box, and returned it to its cupboard in the bedroom. After that, I slept in Luke's old surgery. But still, it screams at me. It hates me. I was the one who told Luke the story, you know. Listen, James. What? The wind and the tide. Captain, do you have to go on with this story? Can't we talk about old times? Yes, yes, old times. Remember old Blocklot? A carpenter, wasn't he? Yes. On the clock top. <laughs> I remember. He, he used to say, when we were hove to in a howling gale. I remember. I remember. Biddy, de boor, pebble, sort, his <laughs> night pies. <laughs> that's, that's just the way he'd say it. Yes. And always on a night like this. <laughs> Listen. Huh. So that's what it is. What, James? <laughs> you old fraud. That's the classic sound of wind howling in the chimney. James, <laughs> I'll get the thing and show it to you. Here's the box. That's it? Yes. My candle went out as I brought it downstairs. Well, uh, put the box down. It went out, but it was the draft from the leaky window on the landing. Put it down. Yes. Did you hear anything when I went up? Yes. There was another scream. Whatever that scream came from, it wasn't from this. No? I had the box in my hand when I heard the noise. And here it is now. So we have proved definitely that the screams are produced by something else. The chimney. To think I could have been so weak as to fancy that the poor skull could really cry out like a living thing with the agony of melted lead poured through the ear into its brain. Then don't talk that way, Captain. Uh, no, no, I, I, I won't. Well, if you're going to show me Luke's medical specimen, open the box. Yes, yes, I will, James. You see how carefully I wrapped it in brown butcher's paper and tied it with string. Mm -hmm. Now, we look at it under the bright lamp. It's awful to think that the poor lady used to sit there in your chair hmm? where the dog Bumble later stared at Luke in just the same lamplight. Oh, come, come now, Captain. Let's have a look at this. See? Here's the label I put on it to seal the string. And here's what I wrote. Hmm. Once the property of the late Luke Pratt, M.D., one skull. Hmm. Well, open it, Captain. I often wondered what sort of hat it was that came in this box. What kind of hat? A gay spring hat with a bobbing feather and pretty ribbons. Strange if this same box should hold the head that wore open that... Open it. yes. Yes. Open it. No. Strange. I don't have the strength in my hands anymore, James. Can you break the string? Yes. There. Now. Oh. Oh. 
Oh, good Lord, take the lamp. The window. James, the lamp. Close that window, Captain. Yes, 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 I'll close the window, but don't let the lamp go out if you can help How it. can I help it if you don't close the blasted window? Now, shut out that gale. Yes, yes, Here. Yeah. The boat was only half down. It won't blow open again. That's the advantage of these old-fashioned windows with the bolt. Now, the hat box. Where is it? Where? Did it blow off the table? Oh, must be here. Ah, uh, there it is, on the floor. Uh, Hand it up there, will you, James? Uh, there you are. Now, open it. Yeah. You see? The lid comes off easily enough. There. Now, look, James. At what? There's nothing in the box. What? Empty? Hmm. Empty, Captain. No. That must not be. Captain, there never was a skull, was there? Never a skull? No skull. You imagined the whole thing. Yes. Yes, I imagined it. Turn up the lamp. Yes. You've been living alone too long, old friend. I can't understand. Do you suppose the sextant Traherne suspects something? Do you suppose he could have stolen it? Why would he steal it? What's that? On the floor. Where? There, by your foot. No, Captain, for heaven's sake, it's nothing. Nothing at all, but... But this... But what? This. Then I'm guilty. Then Luke did listen to the story. Then the thing does hate me. And this fell out just now when the box blew to the floor. It hates me. Why would it hate you? Because I told the story. And there you have the end of the story. A round ball of lead. Then, where's the skull? Do you want me to answer? No. No, I'm not going to answer it, Captain. It hates me. I told Luke the story. How did it get out of the box this time? This is no affair. Captain, I'm going. Are you coming? Where? Out the other way, the back way. No. It hates me. It blames me. Then I'm going. You can come or not. No, it hates me. Come with me, Captain. Leave this and come with me. No. Then God help you. Because... I can't. James. James! What do you want of me? Don't do that. Don't. I know, I know the frightful agony... The hot lead, the melted metal searing into the brain. Don't blame me. I know. I know what you want. 
Here. Here it is. My pistol. The old pistol from Rio. Do you remember, James? No. I won't answer. Don't blame me. Don't blame me. I won't open the door. I knew what you wanted. Mystery Theater has presented The Screaming Skull, a tale of the supernatural by Marion Crawford, adapted for radio by George Salverson, with Hugh Webster as James, Tommy Tweed as the captain, Drew Thompson as Luke, Marion Waldman as Mary, his wife, and Eric Clavering as Traherne. Sound effects were by John Sliz, and technical operation by Robert Burt. This is Bill Lawrence speaking. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The stentor, a water animal, has the most violent death in nature. It ends its life by exploding into minute particles. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about an unlikely death for a mountain climber. For sheer strength and bravery, and perhaps a touch of the theatrical, few could match Tita Pias. Pias, the famed alpine mountain climber and guide who lived in Cortina, Italy, climbed the forbidding Winkler Tower, 9,000 feet of sheer rock, with his five-year-old son strapped to his back. Pias, who had climbed the steep, forbidding Beaujolais Tower 300 times without mishap, died in a fall from a bicycle. Believe it or not. <laughs>
Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Soul Stealer by Ian Gordon. Preface It was a grey day in the northern quarter. Black clouds gathered overhead as Jack Gill crossed Oldham Street in the direction of Kane's rare books. The shop, barely noticeable among the untidy facades of Tibb Street, was owned and operated by his old acquaintance, Norman Kane, a man of indeterminate years, singularly devoted to the acquisition of the written word. Books, comics, magazines, notebooks, textbooks. You get the idea. The place had been a Manchester institution for over three decades, having first opened its doors in the latter half of the vibrant 1980s. The first drops of the petrichor-tinged late-summer drizzle fell upon the pavement, as Gill rapped on Kane's lowered shutters. It was Sunday, and consequently the store was closed, but Gill wasn't there on business. Within a minute or two, Gill heard the familiar fumbling on the other side of the shutters, and up they came, revealing the shop's proprietor in the expected attire, namely creased pinstripe trousers and a time-worn off-white dress shirt, over which was thrown a black velvet smoking jacket. No words were exchanged, just a simple nod from both parties, followed by the obligatory handshake, which, from Gill's perspective, was always a perplexing gesture, given that Norman Kane had no hands of his own. Something had deprived his friend of those extremities many years earlier, though Gill, nor anyone else to his knowledge, had ever inquired as to the nature of the incident which had resulted in the loss. So therefore, to shake Kane's hand was to clutch and jiggle a cold, plastic fist. Gill made his way into the shop, as the proprietor pulled the shutters down behind them. Gill's eyes fell upon the familiar interior, the ceiling-high shelves filled to bursting point with dusty hardbacks, the upright piano— its keyboard a home to horror first editions, table after table of comic-book memorabilia in its original packaging, and the numerous wicker baskets overflowing with pulp magazines. The jazzy, dissonant tones of some long-forgotten music pervaded the air, tunes from the golden age of radio, emitted from an antique console radio. But their destination was the basement, a room under lock and key, a space known only to Cain's nearest and dearest, a place to which Gill had finally been blessed with an invitation, the private collection. Cain approached an unassuming wooden bistro chair, weighed down by a number of heavy-looking volumes, and, with considerable effort, reached underneath and lifted the two front legs off the ground. The tipping motion triggered a mechanism to the rear of the chair, which, in turn— caused one of the bookshelves to open outwards, revealing a hidden door. Reaching into a jacket pocket, Kane fished out an iron key, and proceeded to unlock the secret portal, his imitation hand maintaining a uniform grip throughout. Beyond the threshold, at the bottom of a gloomy staircase, a dimly lit space beckoned. Kane led the way, Gill followed. The underground room was a modest space, some ten by six feet in diameter. But what it lacked in size, it made up for in content. Every inch of wall space was dedicated to reading material, 
Shelves towered from floor to ceiling, full to the brim with books, magazines, textbooks, et al., of rare and unknown origin, at least rare and unknown to Gill. The visitor gulped with his mouth agape, a regular Charlie in his very own chocolate factory, his eyes moving from one leather-bound opus to the next, feasting on the banquet of curiosity before him. But Gill, despite an overwhelming desire to browse at his own leisure, knew that it was his duty to count how to cane. Old Norman was the master of the place, and as was his wont, it was the prerogative of the keeper of the collection to select an appropriate point of discussion. It was always this way. Gill turned to face his friend, and watched as Kane's gaze targeted a small glass display cabinet on the north wall. To quell his excitement, Gill nibbled his bottom lip, for not only was this his first visit to the private collection— but also it was the first time the proprietor had ever threatened to reveal the contents of a locked cabinet, and the invite he waited with bated breath as Kane reached into an inside jacket pocket, fished out another iron key, and proceeded to unlock the cupboard. A few tense moments followed, as Kane moved a plastic hand back and forth in the act of selecting a tome from which to spin a yarn. Finally, the stiff appendage settled on a perfectly ordinary-looking sketchbook, and the proprietor carefully untucked it with a rigid finger. Gill immediately noted that the item, as had been the case with the cabinet, was protected. The homemade combination lock had been affixed to the hardback cover. Kane turned back to his friend, and, speaking for the first time that dismal August morning, said in his thick Lancashire accent, You read H.P. Lovecraft? Gill frowned returning, from time to time. Kane flipped the A4-sized sketchbook over in his plastic hands, the faint light from the exposed bulb above his head absorbed by its black, matte binding. A friend of mine acquired this, he said, his eyes exploring the book's tattered spine, his porcelain-white fingers brushing the combination look. And before you ask, I don't know the combination. What is it, Lovecraft? Kane looked up, meeting Gill's gaze. "'Oh, not quite,' he said, shaking his head. "'Though you might say the story it contains is full of Lovecraftian flavour.'